0: It may be something of a challenge for me this morning with my voice, but don't get it in your head there's no sermon this morning. That happens once a year. You get that once a year, and that was last week. So no, no. Now, Renee and I are going to tag team here, so that'll, that'll help us. Gosh, Renee, we, we may go all afternoon. That's what I'm thinking. So it's wonderful uh, to see All of you here. Don't feel sorry for me. I think I got this on the golf course. (laughs) I mean I was fine, played golf, and then I think all of the it's the allergens. I wasn't yelling about bad shots. Renee yells about his bad shots. I don't yell. It's wonderful to see all of you. Some of you, I suspect, are visiting from other places, visiting family during this holiday season. We're so glad that you're here as well. This morning, we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper, and we invite everyone who's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to join in the supper with us. But as we enter into that part of our worship service, we... We want to do so by reflecting on some of the marvelous truths that we remind ourselves of every year at this time. I think it helps for us to appreciate what Advent is about when we go back time and again to the familiar passages that tell us something of Christ and his birth and his reason for coming. So, I want to go to perhaps the most familiar passage of all, Luke chapter 2. And I want to start reading in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their hometown to register. a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about." glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So the prophet Micah, centuries before, had said Messiah would be born in this small hamlet of Bethlehem, about five miles south of Jerusalem. But as Luke reminds us, Joseph and Mary were from Nazareth which is in the far north reaches of Israel. So how was the prophecy to be fulfilled that Joseph and Mary would be in Bethlehem so the birth of Messiah would take there? Well, enter the politics of the Roman Empire. Luke tells us that Caesar Augustus, we know him as Octavian, the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Octavian decreed that there would be a census of the land, probably for taxation, but Luke doesn't tell us the reason. And Luke really isn't interested in Octavian's reason. Because as Luke sees it, this is God at work, maneuvering things in ways that none of the leaders of the world recognize. They're just going about their business. Augustus is running his empire. He wants to raise taxes on the people to fund his government programs and his military. But God was using the census to move this young couple, Joseph and Mary, to Bethlehem that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled. And so there they are, and there Jesus is born. Never a more obscure birth. (laughs) Certainly no one who was well-born or wealthy or powerful would give a second thought to the birth of this young child, even if they had heard of it. Who cares what's happening in this tiny little town, in this cultural backwash of Judea? Who cares about that? It's in Rome that the decisions are being made. Rome controls the world, or so people would think. But... In this obscure place, to this humble couple, to a mother stigmatized by illegitimacy, seemingly. Jesus is born, and he is the one, according to the prophets. He is the child, according to Isaiah, who would be born to us. And he is the one upon whom the kingdom of God will rest. The the authority of God's kingdom will rest on his shoulders. And he is the one who will reign and rule forever. Now, there's no one there to celebrate. There's no choir to sing with the coming of Jesus. And so there must be a choir. This is a momentous moment. And so God sends a choir and angels appear in the sky and they celebrate glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now in that hope depiction of what the angels say, we miss so much that the first century Christians would not have missed. When it speaks of Jesus as Savior, as bringing peace, that would have immediately stood out to the first readers of this story. Let me tell you why. Before Octavian came to the throne, Rome had suffered years of bloody wars. Against all odds, Octavian was able To bring and to bring about and establish a durable peace. And with that peace came prosperity. So in the Roman Forum, the shrine of Janus, which always stood open during times of wars, its doors were finally shut. The Roman Senate and the people gave Octavian, Octavian the title Augustus, which means great one. Or exalted one. It could even be translated sacred one. And there were people that actually ascribed a kind of deity to Octavian because of his great success. There was, a, there was a, an altar to peace that was built after his death that commemorated Augustine values. Throughout Asia Minor, Greek cities set aside September 23rd, his birthday, as the first day of the year. And they said that on that day, the Savior of the world had been born. There's even an ancient inscription that says, the birthday of this God marks the beginning of good news to the world. Good news to the world this deified human being, this emperor of Rome was the savior who brought this good news to the world, but not according to heaven and not as Luke tells us because not some human being with pretensions of deity, but but God himself coming in the form of a humble child who would grow among us, That's who would establish peace in this earth. Not the Roman ruler, but the Davidic Messiah. And the peace that he would bring would not simply be the cessation of war, but it would be a peace that penetrated to the heart and that would eventually expand to encompass the entire universe. And we are here this morning commemorating that birth celebrating the grace of God displayed in the birth of that child, where people forget about the emperors. I'm telling you about Octavian. You likely don't even remember the name. He comes from elementary school. It's a passing reference in history. But we all know who Jesus is because he is God's appointed savior. Savior. And the one who redeems all. Well, the, the, the shepherds, they, they were overwhelmed by this. And they went and they told everyone everything they had seen. But of course, Mary, Mary treasured all these things in her heart. She held it close. She pondered them. Now, when you read a story like that, there's so much There. The the whole gospel is found there. But I just want, leading up to our time of, of receiving the Lord's Supper, to mention two things that are so very important, I think. In light of this passage, we must all, each of us, each of us individually, we must all seek peace. The peace that endures forever. The peace that only comes through Jesus Christ. The angel said, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those on whom his favor dwells. The peace the angel spoke of is shalom. It's that well-being, that wholeness that comes from the favor of God and only from the favor of God. You don't find this kind of peace except when God smiles upon you. And many people wonder, well, how could God smile upon me when I am a sinner? But you see, that's the whole point. Sinners need saviors. And God sent Jesus Christ to be our savior from sin. He was the righteous one who had never sinned. And yet there he is, carrying his cross, bearing upon his shoulders, bearing upon his heart, the suffering that belonged to us. He was righteous, and yet all the iniquity of the world comes upon him as he dies on that cross. And in that moment, it appears as if sin has triumphed. Jesus is entombed. Sin and death are victorious until the third day when Christ defeats sin and death in the resurrection. And so Christ is alive. This one was born to die, but also to take his life back again. And so Jesus is alive and he is here for every single one of us. We must seek peace. You might be burdened with such guilt. You might live with this secret anguish that no one really understands or can appreciate. There are mistakes you've made that leave you living with such regret. Or you have this sense that something is broken in you and you don't know how to fix it. In the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. That's what the Scripture says. A Savior for people like you and me, sinners all. And so you must seek that peace. You must put your trust in the one who died in your place and allow him not simply to to cleanse you of your sins, but also to fill you with his life. You can do that this morning. You don't need any special instructions. All you have to do is turn to Christ. Now, that word "turns" is important because it assumes something. It assumes that you've been turned to going your own way and doing your own thing. You have to turn from that to Christ, to acknowledging him as Savior and Lord. The two go together. You don't have to be perfect, but you have to declare your allegiance to Jesus. He is Savior and Lord. So number one, in light of this passage, we need to seek peace. Second, we need to speak peace. That's what the shepherds did. They went everywhere, telling everyone about God's grace, God's favor. They had heard the angels. We need to hear the angels and we need to repeat what they said. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And and he says that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are God's ambassadors. So that means you and me as ambassadors for God, are to go about and speak for God about this reconciliation brought about through Jesus Christ. We are to speak of that. We are to tell people that God did not send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world. And so we speak that. That doesn't mean that you can just preach sermons everywhere you go. Sometimes you can't speak much, but you can just share a brief word. But we are ambassadors. We need to tell people the good news. The good news that's connected with the gospel of Jesus Christ and what a difference that makes, how that changes everything. Now, as we share the Lord's Supper this morning, It is an affirmation of our faith that Jesus Christ is indeed the Savior of the world. The one who was born 2,000 years ago, the one who died, and the one who who was raised to life, that one is our life. That's what we're saying when we eat and drink together. And it's in that moment, as we put our faith in God, that extraordinary things can happen. That burdens can be lifted, that people who feel like they've reached the end, a dead end, can get a new start, that those who are oppressed by their sin can know that they're forgiven. Extraordinary things can happen. People have been he- healed as they have shared in the Lord's Supper. Depressions have lifted, anxiety has departed. Please don't think I'm, I'm saying that magic will take place or that all your troubles will go away. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying be expectant. God will do what he determines to do, but we can look to him in faith knowing that he is present, knowing that he can save, and he is a savior. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for the extraordinary measureless grace you have poured out upon us. Thank you for your favor that comes because we have a Savior who has stood in our place and removed our sins. And Lord, as we reflect on these truths and share in the supper that you've given us, may you do a deep work in each one of us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.